0: Well, I, I wanted to start off today by just kind of setting the tone, really high, with just you know showering you with some cuteness, if that's okay. So I've got a, a video of my son singing the blessing. It's a short video, but I just really wanted to show it to you. So go ahead and check it out. Oh, go ahead and sing and do it. Oh, you can't go wrong by showing a video of your cute kid before you start preaching. Um, that's one of those songs that Hannah and I have been singing to Henry and over him um, for the past uh, few months and even really the past year. And it's a song that's meant a lot to us. And uh, I had kind of a, a really vulnerable moment the other day as I was singing this to him and over him. I, I began thinking about, like, what's life going to be like for Henry 5, 10, 15 years from now, like when, when he graduates, where's he going to be at in his faith? What what type of decisions and experiences is he going to have that are going to push him in his faith? And then as I began to think about that, I had some, some of this fear coming up inside of me that I didn't really realize I had. I began thinking, like, what if my son has decisions made for him or decisions that he makes that... Maybe don't lead him closer to faith, but further from faith. Like, what if, what if him going and growing in faith isn't, doesn't come as naturally as we'd like it to? And, and this fear was just kind of wrecking me a little bit. And so Hannah and I have had these conversations before, but it just kind of took it to the next level where I'm like, okay, what do we need to do as parents to really lead our children well in their faith? What does it take for someone who doesn't know Jesus to grow in faith and and develop a faith? And I'm sure that's a question that isn't unique to my situation. I'm sure you've asked that about family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. You're like, man, what's it going to take for them to really grow in their faith? Like, what's it going to take for my spouse? I mean, I've been asking them to come to church, and I've been telling them about Jesus for weeks and months and and even years. Like, what's it going to take to help them grow? What, what, what's it going to take for my parents to grow in their faith and not just be Christmas and Easter attenders, but like attend out of this desire to get to know Jesus more? What's it going to take for my coworker to stop making those destructive decisions and truly grow in their faith? What does it take for someone who doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus? I was reading in Scripture this week, preparing for the sermon in uh, 2 Kings chapter 13. And this is at the end of Elisha's life. And I have a feeling that he asks that question often as a prophet in Israel, but especially about this guy that he meets in this passage. Uh, A little bit of context for you. This is a meeting between Elisha and King Joash. And Joash was put on the throne when he was seven years old. How many people here remember what it was like to be seven? Show of hands. Yeah, if you're watching online right now, you can give a thumbs up or like a facepalm emoji if you're like, I don't, bad year for me. I don't know. Now, how many people, like just all honesty, show of hands, if you had become king or queen at seven years old, got all the power, all the fame, all the money you could possibly imagine, how many people here realize what a disaster that would be? Show of hands. Yeah, for those who didn't raise your hands, thanks for being here today, Jesus. The rest of us, we we wouldn't have been so quick to, we, we had some stuff to work out when we were seven years old. Seven years old, and and Joash has this unique upbringing. There's times where he's really following God. There's times where he's not following God. But at this point in his life, he's a teenager, and Scripture says he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And he comes to Elisha. Some of the undertones are that he's had this relationship with Elisha, a a friendship, a a mentorship. But this is going to be the last time that they see each other because Elisha is on his deathbed. Says this in verse 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, King Joash of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. That doesn't mean, that phrase doesn't mean a lot to us in in this context. But if we rewind a, a few chapters in Scripture, you'll see that this is the exact phrase that Elisha used when talking to his mentor, Elijah, before he left this earth and was taken up into heaven. So by Joash saying this, there's, there's a few things going on. Number one, there's this relationship that Joash has with Elisha that's similar to Elijah, almost like a mentorship role. The other thing is that Elisha has this, this uh, there's this power that exists because of Elisha's relationship with God, and Joash is mourning that that won't be there anymore when Elisha passes. In modern terms, he's like, Elisha, what are we going to do without you? How is this nation going to survive? What am I going to do without you? So as as he grieves this loss, Elisha says, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. Then he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And then he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, for you shall fight the Arameans in Afek until you have made an end to them. Some of you are freaking out. You're like, did they check to make sure there's nobody outside the window? Is this like a safe thing? Why are we shooting arrows out of a window? All fair questions. In this specific context, this was, this was a ritual. It was a ceremony. So when you were going to go to war in this day and age, you'd shoot an arrow, throw a dart, throw a spear towards or into the country that you were going to go to war with. So he's he's so Joash comes and he's like, What are we gonna do without you? And Elisha's like, You're going to war. So he shoots, he performs this ritual, the ceremony, but then Elisha takes it a whole other step forward. He says this, he continued, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. He struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Aram until you would have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Aram only three times. The context is is difficult to sift through at times, but there's, there's this undertone of reluctance in Joash. We're not totally sure what he's thinking, but he, he's got a quiver of arrows, and he only shoots three of them, and Elisha is disappointed. We, we can try to put ourselves in his shoes. I mean, I picture that, like, as the king of Israel, maybe he had, like, really fancy arrows, you know, made with fancy wood, like cedar, cypress. I, I don't know what fancy wood is. Um, maybe he had these special arrows, and, and he's performed the ceremony, he's performed the ritual, and then Elisha's like, okay, now shoot the rest of your arrows into the ground. I mean, at best, he ends up with some crooked arrows, right? Like, you shoot them into the ground, and they're not functional anymore, but maybe they look all right. At the worst, he, he's going to break the arrows or, or lose them entirely. It feels like a, like a Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off moment to me. Like, how, how is shooting a bunch of arrows into the ground possibly going to help me win a battle against the Arameans? And yet, it's that simple act of obedience that seems so insignificant, so inconsequential, that we'll win or lose battles for Joe Ash. You know, when I was 12 years old, my, uh, my first volunteer position in church was, uh, was being a sound guy. And I knew nothing about sound. They put me back there every Sunday. Sometimes I'd just, like, twist the dials just to see what would happen. Horrible. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. I, I imagine... Um, that the worship team looked at me much in the same way that Joe Ash looked at shooting those arrows into the ground. Like, why do we have this 12-year-old back there? He knows absolutely nothing about what he's doing. Dude keeps twisting the dials, making it sound worse. Like, we might as well have nobody back there to begin with. It seems so insignificant and inconsequential to put a 12-year-old on a soundboard. But little did they know that putting me back there would lead to me leading worship learning how to play guitar and learning how to play guitar would lead me to meet my wife which would lead me and Hannah to lead worship on campus and then all around around the states and then that would eventually lead me here. Sometimes those actions of obedience they seem so insignificant so inconsequential they feel like shooting arrows into the ground where all you're left with is like some broken arrows or crooked arrows. And those may be the very moments where God is preparing you for victory. Think about this. This plays out in your everyday life, right? Like, if you want to have a successful marriage of 50 or more years, having a $50,000 wedding is not going to guarantee that. It's the little things, right? It's having honest and open communication. It's entering into conflict and resolving to put each other first it's it's waking up early with the kids while your spouse sleeps in those little insignificant actions lead to victory in your marriage same is true of business right like if you want to have a successful business you have to spend hours and hours doing insignificant and inconsequential actions like taxes and write-offs and everything that that seems so insignificant and yet when you do them and you do them diligently you do them consistently they lead to victory I think as a people, so often we see the success of others. We see people stepping on stage for that award or that achievement and, and at the peak of their career or their life or whatever that is without ever seeing all the arrows they shot into the ground. All the preparation, hours and hours of work they poured into whatever it is they were successful in. And the same is true of our faith. You can't have a, a successful prayer life without hours and hours of prayer. And sometimes, to to borrow the title for next week's sermon series, sometimes you're praying and it feels like you're talking to walls. Sometimes it feels insignificant, but you keep shooting those arrows. And that's what leads you to victory in your prayer life. You want to get to know God more. You spend time in the word. And there's times where you're reading through the book of Numbers and you're like, why am I reading about how many people were in the Israel army again? Like it just feels like shooting arrows into the ground. It's that habit. It's committing to do the insignificant, the inconsequential things that will lead you to victory. You see, the first thing I notice about this text is that there are moments in our lives, and I'm going to call them crooked arrow moments, you know, those moments where, where what you're doing feels so insignificant, it feels so inconsequential, like nothing can possibly come from this action of obedience, where God is preparing you for victory. Second thing I notice is how amazing it is that a 90-year-old prophet could have so much influence over a young teenage king. You know, a year ago, there was a man who came to our church pre-COVID. Obviously, he came to our church, and he was doing an assignment for class. And his assignment was he had to go to all these churches in the Thousand Islands region, and and he had to um, he had to experience their services, write what he saw, they did well, what they didn't do well, everything in between. And we were the last stop for this this gentleman. And he stayed for the nine o'clock and the ten thirty service, got the experience. And he came up to me after, and he was like, how is it possible that you have a church where there's young and old and everyone in between participating? How is that possible? He's like, I've been to so many churches, and there's nobody younger than 50 years old at these churches. How is it possible? What does it take for the next generation to really step into faith? What does it take to see a young adult step into leadership, a young family take steps towards leading their families in faith? I'm sure he had heard the statistics that have come out recently, that two-thirds, and maybe he had just experienced it, that two-thirds of high school students upon graduation will leave their faith within the first few weeks of graduating. The other third, if they manage to hang on to their faith, If they don't get plugged into a community in that time at university or their young adult years, the chances of them following in their faith drops significantly. Asking this question, what what does it take to, to reach the lost, the hurting, the people that don't really know Jesus? What does it take? I would argue that that is right here in the text for us today. Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He laid his hands on the king's hands. You know what that tells me? This, in the passage before where Joash cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, that tells me that Elisha was not just present, in the life of Joash, but he was invested. He wasn't just present, he was invested. And so that is the call for us as a church body to not just be present, but to be invested. Invested in the lives of our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, even the people in the city, we don't really know well. Our call is to be invested. Jesus said it like this: "Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. We are called to go and make disciples, and, if, and the way to do that, the way to do that is to invest, to not just be present, but to truly be truly invest. There was a study done by the Fuller Youth Institute, and they looked at 259 churches over a four-year period who were effectively reaching ages 15 to 29, and they said, like, how are you reaching these ages creatively, missionally, and numerically? What does it take to reach the first generation that's post-Christian, they didn't grow up with Bible stories. That didn't grow up with the beautiful hymn we sung last week, I Surrender All. To them, it's a totally new song. What does it take for them to grow in their faith? You'd be interested to find out. I, I thought the language was pretty entertaining. They're, they're not looking for the Christian version of Disneyland when they show up to church, you know, <laughs> like smoke and mirrors or the pastor descending from the rafters. That's a good idea, though. That would be... Pastor Jason, put that in your back pocket. Christmas 2021. Um, They're they're not looking for for this Christian version of Disneyland. They're looking to be seen, known, and loved. Simply put, the people in our culture who are furthest away from God, who who don't have a relationship with God, are looking to be invested in. They're looking to be discipled. One of the reasons that i'm standing here today is because of the older folks that took the time to really invest in my life to pray for me to pray over me to spend time with me to invite me to bible study to get me to come not only to sunday morning service but sunday night service as well and there were a lot of times where i looked like a crooked arrow you know i was i was doing things at home that were totally opposite to the life of faith i was attempting to live in in the church context. But those people kept shooting their arrows. They kept praying for me, they kept meeting with me, inviting me to Bible study, being present in my life because they believed that God could use crooked arrows to prepare a way for victory. I don't know what that does in you. Maybe, maybe for you, you're like, have you seen me interact with the teen? Like, I don't even know what a retweet is. They, they keep saying I'm flexing, I don't, I don't know what that is. Or or maybe you're a teen and you're like, okay, I hear this call to invest and and you're like, how am I supposed to invest in someone that's older than me? Or or how am I supposed to invest in in my friend's parents who don't know Jesus? Or maybe you're you're somewhere in the middle and you're like, yeah, I I can invest in my neighbor, but we have totally different lifestyles. We have totally different living circumstances. I don't even know where I would begin. But check out the end of this, this passage. It says, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he came to life and stood on his feet. You may feel like your ability to connect with someone younger than you, older than you, in a different stage of life than you, is long gone and dead like a pile of dry bones. But we serve a God who brought a man to life with dry bones. We serve a God who parted the seas and walked on water. And if my God can do that, you better believe he can use your crooked arrows and dry bones to prepare a way for victory in this generation. So my challenge for you today is really simple. My challenge for you today is who are you investing in? Who, who's that one person who's maybe younger than you, maybe older than you, maybe same age as you, who you're like, that person needs someone in their life who can speak truth into them, who can encourage. Who's that person that you're going to spend time getting coffee with? Maybe, maybe you're watching online or, or maybe you're here in person. You're like, I don't know if I feel comfortable going out to coffee yet or I don't like coffee. We've got Zoom. We've got texting. We've got Facebook, whatever that is. Who are you actively invested in? Who do you pray for regularly? And then I want to ask you, who's invested in you? Who's that person that's older, that's wiser than you, who can offer you counsel, who can offer you correction, who can be honest with you when you need it? I've got to be honest, some of of the, the greatest moments of development in my faith have been when people who have been significantly older than me have poured into my life, have invested in me intentionally. So who are you discipling? and who is discipling you I want to take some time in this next song just to pray about this I want us all including myself to ask who's that who's that one person that's starting this week I'm going to intentionally invest in they might be here in this church right now chances are they're not they might be a neighbor someone you see at the store regularly it might be one of your kids friends it might be their parents And then ask God, who's that person that can invest in me? Who's that person that can offer me wisdom and correction? Imagine what would happen here in Brockville if we began to invest and invest and invest As we invested in others, they would learn to invest in others. As we discipled others, they would disciple others. It'd be like a snowball rolling down a hill. We'd see more and more people grow, more and more people discipled. Can you imagine how that would change our schools? How would that change our city landscape? How would that bleed out into the surrounding region and into the Thousand Islands region? Could that be the spark of revival in Brockville? May we be a people crooked arrows and dry bones and all, who act in obedience to the call to make disciples, whatever it takes. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. I thank you for every single person here, every single person watching online. I thank you, God, for the people that you have placed in our lives who have spurred us on in our faith. And now, God, you're calling us to step out, to walk in faith. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to walk in obedience, even in those times when it feels like we're shooting arrows into the ground where we're not making progress, we believe, God, that those are the moments where you're preparing the way for victory. I pray that you transform us. I pray dry bones will come to life in this St. Lawrence Valley. I pray this in your name.